a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we will speak with cancer patients, survivors and medical professionals to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. I'm Danny Binnington and today we're going to be discussing the safety of vaginal estrogen in all breast cancer survivors. Systemic therapies to treat breast cancer can lead to a whole array of vaginal and urinary problems and actually it's a huge survivorship issue that affects nearly 70% of postmenopausal breast cancer survivors and even more in younger women. And these symptoms are often underdiagnosed and undertreated due to two things really, the underreporting by patients and also the limited awareness by medical professionals. So I know you're either suffering in silence or you might not know what options are safe for you. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Glynn. She works in the NHS as a GP with a special interest in the menopause at Oxford Medical Practice. Sarah is so keen to support all breast cancer survivors in her practice and I'm delighted she's here to share her wealth of information with us. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah, to talk about this really important topic. You don't actually live too far away from me. We're both in Surrey. Tell us a little bit more about you as your work as a GP and how you advocate for people with a cancer diagnosis. Sure. So um, I'm a GP menopause specialist now. Um, I was a GP, a general GP for a long time until sort of a few years ago when I started to focus more on menopause. And I work at Claire Mellon and Associates at the Portland Hospital in London. And I also work with Louise Newson on the research um, and education side of things at Newson Health. And I'm interested obviously in the menopause generally, but I'm also particularly interested in menopause care after breast cancer. Um, I, probably in future I'll get um, you know more specialist knowledge about other types of cancer cancer as well but at the moment I'm very focused on breast cancer um, and as an aside I also see lots of women with long COVID um, who are having issues with their hormones. So let's think about when you started back as a GP in the day I assume lots of patients would report to you with symptoms of vaginal atrophy that horrible word that it's very difficult to even pronounce um, and it's a terminology that has changed over the last years and definitely in in your time as a GP can you tell us um, what the difference is, why the terminology has changed and some of the symptoms that come with these words? Yeah, sure. So in the past, so vaginal atrophy or vaginal dryness is a really common menopausal symptom. It probably affects about 75, 80% of women as they go through the menopause and after. Um, and it's an, a really important symptom because unlike most other symptoms that usually sort of settle down after the menopause. Um, if you've got symptoms of vaginal atrophy, which we'll discuss in a second, um, they don't. If you leave them untreated, they just get worse. Um, and and you're right, it used to be called vaginal atrophy and vaginal dryness is, is, is the symptom that most people uh, associate with vaginal atrophy, but it's a really horrible term. If you look it up in the dictionary, I think it means something like withering away or, you know, it's a really horrible term. And nowadays it's called genitourinary syndrome of the menopause, which is a, a much nicer way to think about it. And it encompasses the fact that it's not just all about vaginal dryness. Um, and to think of it in that way, um, 
I think dismisses a lot of, of patient symptoms and, and a lot of patients' concerns and fears because it's not just vaginal dryness. It can be any symptom to do with the vagina, the vulva, the bladder. So it's things like dryness, itching, soreness, burning, urine retract infections, recurrent urine retract infections or UTIs, recurrent thrush, BV, um, sexual dysfunction, loss of sen sensitivity, uh, reduced pleasure. Um, it, it, it's lots and lots of symptoms. And some women have really, really debilitating symptoms to the point where they can't wear underwear um, or they feel, you know, they can't sit down properly. And, you know, recurrent urine tract infections, women are admitted to hospital, thousands of women each year in the UK and in other countries. Women die from urine resepsis. So it's a really significant symptom of the menopause. Also affects mental health, sleep, marriages, ability to work if you can't concentrate because you've been awake at night, etc. So it's a really, um, it's much more serious symptom often than calling it vaginal atrophy or vaginal dryness. And a woman who hasn't had a cancer diagnosis, why do these symptoms happen? Explain a little bit about what happens in our body. Yeah, sure. So um, two reasons, really. As we become perimenopausal um, and then menopausal, obviously our hormone levels are dropping. And historically, we've always focused on oestrogen uh, and the changes in oestrogen that happen across the menopause transition. Um, and from our 40s onwards, usually the average age of menopause in the UK is 51, 52. Um, the perimenopause is the period leading up to the menopause where women start to notice a change in their health or a change in their periods. And for some women, uh, genitourinary syndrome can be the first symptom. It can be the first thing that they notice starts to change. Um, and for other women, it comes much later or even in their 50s or 60s. It's very, very variable. And as our estrogen levels drop, we have estrogen receptors throughout the vagina, the vulva, the bladder, the pelvic floor, etc. And as the estrogen levels drop, it causes changes. So the vaginal epithelium starts to thin, it becomes less stretchy, uh, the pH starts to change, the vaginal flora or the microbiome starts to change, uh, the blood flow decreases, you get all of these symptoms. So often, uh, in, as I say, in the perimenopause, women start to complain of itching, burning, soreness, UTIs. More and more, we're now realising the importance of testosterone as well. Um, and testosterone is is slightly different to oestrogen. Before the menopause, testosterone is our most abundant hormone. We make three to four times as much. Um, and again, historically, we've always thought of it as a male hormone, which is obviously just not true. Um, nothing's ever that straightforward. If we've got testosterone receptors throughout our body, they must be there for a reason. Um, and one of the places we find them in, again, is the vagina, the vulva, the bladder, the, the urethra, etc., and testosterone levels start to de decrease from, from about your 30s or 40s. It's more of a steady decline. There's a blip at menopause because some of our testosterone is made in the ovaries. So, it, so there is a, a sharper rate of decline. And then they just continue to decrease as you get older. And so for some women, especially I think probably those women who are a bit older and maybe don't start getting symptoms until their 50s or 60s, actually it might be the decrease in testosterone that's causing the problem. And it causes the exact same symptoms that lack of estrogen causes. I have a quick favour to ask. To help the show keep growing, please click the follow button on your podcast player. It really would mean a lot to me. Thank you. So a lot of our listeners would have maybe gone through perimenopause and even menopause naturally. They've then had a cancer diagnosis and then their treatment options of how to treat their menopausal symptoms differ. But a lot of our listeners are young, so they're pre-menopausal women. They haven't even started perimenopause. Can you explain to us which cancer treatments can then 
throw us into menopause or how they can affect our vulva, our vagina, our bladder, urethra? Most of the cancer treatments, obviously, depending on where your cancer was and what type of treatment you've had. So clearly, if you've had a gynecological cancer, um, cancer of the vulva or the vagina or the womb or the ovary, you may have had surgery that's taken away your ovaries. Obviously, that's going to be associated with a profound sudden drop in hormones. Um, you may have had radiotherapy on that area that is damages the skin and causes lots of dryness. Uh, chemotherapy can trigger premature menopause as well. And for some women, if they've had estrogen receptor positive cancers, so in my line of work, I'm thinking breast cancer, but you can also get estrogen receptor positive cancers in other places in the body, like the, uh, the endometrium, for example, or the ovary. If you've had endocrine treatment, by which, and these can affect you in different ways, but tamoxifen um, or aromatase inhibitors, so things like letrozole or anastrozole, exomestane, the aromatase inhibitors in particular uh, reduce estrogen production um, and can also trigger these symptoms. So some women, as you say, are premenopausal when they're diagnosed with cancer, and so they're plunged into a very abrupt early menopause and we know that early menopause is associated with lots of health risks in future it's you know obviously vaginal dryness and those symptoms but it also increases future risk of cardiovascular disease and dementia and osteoporosis um, and we're learning more about that and so at the moment we don't have much long-term we don't have any long-term data actually for women that are using these treatments for up to eight years but older women may find that you know even if they've been through the menopause and hadn't noticed much in the way of symptoms in that area um, the extra whammy of having you know these drugs that really wipe out your estrogen mean that they can start getting symptoms later on in life as well even if they didn't have them before and if you did have them before they can get a lot worse because you probably had some estrogen before you had these treatments and then even that's been taken away so it's this really profound drop in estrogen and testosterone in my introduction before you came on i was uh, giving a statistic saying that it is much worse so uh, the symptoms that uh, patients report with are usually worse than a woman who enters perimenopause and menopause naturally is this also what you found in your practice with helping so many people 100% yeah definitely um, and classically speaking as i say tamoxifen actually can increase vaginal discharge but I have seen a lot of women with genitourinary symptoms who, who are either taking tamoxifen or have had it in the past. Uh, classically, it's the aromatase inhibitors that are particularly associated with genitourinary syndrome. And it's women that are, are on aromatase inhibitors or who have been treated with them that um, are particularly likely to suffer. But it's not black and white. You know, as I say, there's a lot of overlap and it's not, you know, it, it, every patient is different. Yeah. And we've had some really good tips from our community, which I'll read out at the end of our conversation of women explaining to us what's really worked for them, what hasn't worked for them, how easy or difficult it was to access. And so we'll go into that a little bit later. What do we know about the use of vaginal estrogens in general for women who haven't had a cancer diagnosis? And then we get a little bit more into the nitty gritty. And then we'll talk about other ways of supporting our vaginal and vulval health. So the headline is that vaginal oestrogen is very safe for any woman, including any woman who has had an oestrogen receptor positive breast cancer. There may be some transient, very low level absorption when you first start using it. And that's because the, as I said, the vaginal epithelium is very thin. 
But within a few weeks, certainly by 12 weeks, but often within two or three weeks, that transient low level absorption drops and absorption is negligent or minimal. So you are not absorbing estrogen into your bloodstream. It is not hormone replacement therapy. It's not going to help any other menopausal symptoms because it's not getting to where it's needed, but it's very effective at treating genitourinary symptoms. It works locally and it stays locally. So it's very safe. So when someone presents with these symptoms, and it could just be constantly feeling like you need to go to the toilet or you put the, the key in the lock and then you can't feel you can't quite make it or the feeling of not being able to empty your bladder. Is the first line of thought, let's have some vaginal estrogen to help those symptoms because you're so clear in saying they're safe, uh, they're incredibly useful or do you feel a patient with a history of cancer should uh, consider other things first, like vaginal moisturizers, lubes. How do you think we should tackle the process if we're at home suffering? I think it depends very much on the severity of your symptoms and it depends very much on your treatment goals and what the patient wants. So ideally, of course, start with lubricants and moisturizers. We can talk about those. But if your symptoms are severe, that's, then they're probably not going to be enough. Um, and as I said, vaginal estrogen is very safe. So some women might choose to start off with moisturizers, lubricants, see how they get on, come back, add the vaginal estrogen or the testosterone in later. But if women have got severe symptoms and they're really suffering um, and they understand and they're not worried about risk because, you know, uh, as much as we talk about vaginal hormones being safe until there's a randomized controlled trial that conclusively demonstrates it, some women understandably will still be worried about it. From my perspective, I'm very happy that it's very safe because it's not absorbed. So if a woman comes to me with severe symptoms and doesn't want to wait, I'm very happy to give her some vaginal estrogen from the start if that's what she wants. But then I would still recommend using things like lubricants or moisturizers alongside it. So lubricants and moisturizers are two different things, isn't it? And with moisturizers, we kind of think now with the ladies in our communities, they always say we moisturize our vulvas and vaginas just as we do our face now twice a day. And it's part of our regime <laughs> as a GP, which is and we just don't think about it until we have a problem or until other women talk about it, really. As a GP, though, you have products that are not so great. Like we know that you have products that actually irritate our beautiful vaginas and vulvas even more so. And as a patient, that seems incredibly frustrating. So absolutely. You've got to be very, yeah, and you've got to be very careful what you put on that area. Um, always look at the label. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, uh, I, I think it's a little bit like, you know, thinking about what you eat. You know, if you want to promote gut health and your gut microbiome, you avoid ultra processed food and you look at labels and you choose foods that have got as little extra added ingredients as possible and it's exactly the same when we think about our vaginal health because we've got a vaginal microbiome as well that's really important in helping to maintain our vaginal health so you want products with as few ingredients as possible most products that we use on that area are either water-based or water-based some are oil-based some are silicon-based things like for example uh glycols, parabens, perfumes, uh, fragrance. You know, our, our vaginas are not supposed to smell like a flower. They're not supposed to taste like a strawberry. You don't, you don't need, you know, they're good for oral sex. You know, there's different types of sex. But if you're, you, you know, if you're doing penetrative vaginal sex, then you should avoid all of those types of products and stick with the, the, the basic products. So just to go back a step, a vaginal moisturizer is something that you would use every day or most of them are long lasting. You only need to apply them every two or three days. Um, good ones would be something like Yes Vaginal Moisturizer or Recleanse or Regel. 
Whereas lubricants are something that you only need to use during sex. Water-based are, as I say, the most widely available. They're the easiest to use. The main downside is that they evaporate quite quickly. So depending on how long you need it for, you might need to reapply it. Um, oil-based, uh, such as Yes Oil-based or Yes Water-based. Um, Sutil Lux, I've had a lot of positive feedback about Sutil. That's a really good one. The oil-based ones, they're a bit messier, but they last for longer. So it's horses for courses. You choose whichever one you prefer. Oil-based can't be used with condoms. Just need to say that. Yeah. And I'm going to link to a resource article that we've got on the menopauseandcancer.org website that is written by Sam Evans, who is amazing. We call her the lube queen. She knows everything there is to know about safe sex and uh, and hygiene and intim- and she's absolutely amazing. And she's written a great article for us, which I'll link um, into the show notes of our conversation. So we... We know we don't need to smell of roses, but you <laughs> and we're learning that our vulvas and vaginas need to be treated in a really gentle way. So when we think of our breast cancer cohort out there, we think that the women who are on tamoxifen usually worry less about using vaginal estrogens. Why is that? Is it really safe for them? Why do they worry less? Yeah, so absolutely it is. So tamoxifen is a serum. Um, it works by binding to estrogen receptors and it has different effects in different tissues. But in the breast, by binding to the estrogen receptor, it prevents estrogen from binding to the receptor. And if you've got an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, about three quarters of them are. Not surprising that you know tumours in the breast have got estrogen receptors on them because that's where you'd expect to find um, estrogen receptors. Then it's possible that in the presence of estrogen, um, it might stimulate uh, growth of the tumour or more rapid growth. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is another conversation. But anyway, um, the tamoxifen uh, has a binding affinity for the estrogen receptor that's about 100 times greater than estrogen. So estrogen doesn't get anywhere near it. Even if you were absorbing vaginal estrogen, which as I've just said, you're not, it wouldn't matter because it's not going to bind to those receptors because tamoxifen is going to sit there and prevent it. So you've kind of got a dual protection. In the first instance, you're not absorbing it. And in the second instance, even if you were still worried that you might absorb some and, you know, obviously fear of recurrence is, it, it can be a dominating uh, thing that women worry about for obvious reasons. Even if you still don't feel fully relaxed about it, then you know the tamoxifen is going to prevent the estrogen from binding anyway so either way you're going to be safe and the story is slightly different for women who are on aromatase inhibitor so when i just think of maybe 10 ladies in our chat group a few of them would say i'm on aromatase inhibitor i can't have vaginal estrogen or my oncologist said no what is the data for women on aromatase inhibitor and why is there a little bit of a contradictive sort of message out there? It's that's a that's the confusing one when I hear the women in our community talk. Exactly, it's a real shame that there's so much confusion about this because there isn't much data. But if you think about it logically, um, aromatases aromatase inhibitors work by uh, preventing the production of estrogen. So estrogen in our bodies originally comes from cholesterol by way of testosterone. Uh, And then the aromatase enzyme is what uh, converts testosterone to estrogen. So aromatase inhibitors, they they don't work in premenopausal women because the ovary is very clever and it will figure out a way around it. So it will just start making more estrogen if you try and um, uh, give premenopausal women an aromatase inhibitor unless you also give premenopause women something to switch off their ovaries. If you switch off their ovaries, then you can also use an aromatase inhibitor in premenopausal women. But usually what they're used for is uh, 
um, in postmenopausal women who, remember, their ovaries aren't making estrogen anymore once you're postmenopausal or very, very little. So what it does in postmenopausal women is it's stopping the production of estrogen in sites other than the ovary. So we don't just make estrogen in our ovaries and after the menopause, uh, you know, we make it in breast tissue, actually, in blood vessels, in the brain, in the liver, in the skin. You make it in, you know, lots of areas around the body and it just acts locally and has a local effect. So aromatase inhibitors, they don't stop, if there was some circulating estrogen, it's still going to bind to the estrogen receptor. So aromatase inhibitors, um, they, they don't stop an estrogen from binding to the receptor, but they, they reduce your estrogen production. So theoretically, if you had some estrogen in your bloodstream uh, and you're on an aromatase inhibitor, it's still going to bind to the receptor, which would negate the whole point of the aromatase inhibitor. There's no point giving someone something to switch off their estrogen production with one hand. If on the other, you're going to give them some estrogen back, it would make no sense. However, as I've already said several times, Vaginal estrogen is very low dose. Actually, I haven't said that. It's also very low dose. Uh, you know, one Vagifem pessary is 10 micrograms. If you've got, you know, it, over the course of a year, if you're using a standard course of Vagifem, it's roughly 100 um, um, pessaries. The dose is equivalent to one milligram, which is the lowest dose of oral estrogen. It's a tiny dose and it doesn't get absorbed. So it doesn't matter if you're on an aromatase inhibitor. They may not be as effective um, in women, although I have to say in my experience, they do seem to work in women who are using aromatase inhibitors. But logically, there's no risk because if you're not absorbing it, how can it get to the breast and cause harm? It's not going to get there. It doesn't make any sense. So the reason that the advice is not to use it is basically because there's a lack of safety data. There's no randomized controlled trials. There was a study that was published uh, about a year ago, I think, that showed in a small number, about 100 women, I think it was, that the women that were using aromatase inhibitors um, and whose vaginal estrogen had a slightly increased risk of breast cancer recurrence. But that was an observational study. And I think it's really difficult to interpret that data because aromatase inhibitors are usually recommended for women at a higher risk of recurrence anyway. And women can use aromatase inhibitors are much more likely to get genitourinary syndrome of the menopause and use vaginal estrogen so i you know that they didn't demonstrate causality at all so lack of safety data if you're being conservative if you want conclusive data it doesn't exist at the moment but from a logical perspective we've got indirect evidence of safety we know it's not absorbed it makes no sense that women who are using aromatase inhibitors can't have vaginal estrogen it's very safe and it can really, really improve a patient's quality of life from your experience. So Massively. You must have had so many women come to you and they've started on a vaginal estrogen. How do you feel the, the benefits are for these women? It's, it's amazing. It can be life transforming. You know, as I said, you know, some women may only have mild symptoms, but the breast cancer population, they're much more likely to have severe symptoms. Um, and as I said, it affects your sleep. It affects your relationships. It affects your ability to work. It affects your mental health. Um, I'm working at the moment we're just about hopefully to submit um, a consensus statement about HRT um, we want to get after breast cancer that we want to get published and one of the panel members um, he won't mind me saying because I think he's talked about this publicly before uh, he's a urologist and he got involved in uh, or got interested in breast cancer because his wife had breast cancer and she was admitted to hospital with urinary sepsis four times uh, in the year after her breast cancer diagnosis related to the aromatase inhibitors and the treatment that she received for her breast cancer now being being admitted with urinary sepsis is a life-threatening condition. She survived. Uh, she saw one of my colleagues, was given some Vagifem and, and didn't get admitted again. And, you know, all those symptoms went away. So it's so easy to treat. 
age. It's so sad to hear that women are struggling with these symptoms because it's so treatable and it's so safe. You know, I get HRT is much more complicated if you're using systemic estrogen patches. You know, that's a different conversation. But in terms of vagifem, any of these vaginal estrogen treatments, you know, it's such a shame that more women don't have access to them because it can be life transforming. Yeah. And it can stop you from doing many other things. It can stop you from exercising. It can stop you from cycling. It can stop you from actually becoming active. All of those amazing things that are so helpful to reduce our risks of cancer recurrence and, and lifestyle and, and how we're feeling getting out of bed in the morning. There's a fantastic book by somebody called um, Jane Lewis, Me and My Menopausal Vagina, that some of your um, you know listeners may already have, have seen. Yeah, it's a really great book. And it just made me think of her because I, I think she developed she didn't have breast cancer but she developed symptoms in her perimenopause and one of the things that she used to really enjoy in life was horse riding and it wasn't just the horse riding it was the community and the social aspects of you know belonging to that you know knowing those people as well um and she hasn't been able to ride a horse since um even though her symptoms are now much better controlled so yeah it can you know it, it's not just vaginal dryness so can you talk us through what we can access on the nhs when we go to our gp or our breast scanners what types of vaginal estrogens there are. So if someone is thinking, I want to get on top of that and I think I don't want to suffer, where do we start? Are there better products than others or are they all the same? So you've got a few options. So obviously we've talked about moisturizers, lubricants, uh, vaginal health, generally skincare, etc. But in terms of vaginal estrogen, there are three main types of products. So we have pessaries, we have creams and gels, and we have uh, something called an uh, e-stream, which is estrogen in a little ring. Most women will probably use Vagifem or Vagirux. They're exactly the same. It's just that Vagifem comes with a daily applicator, whereas Vagirux, you just get a single applicator. So it's a bit more environmentally friendly because you're not throwing away plastic applicators every day. Um, and the standard doses um, are after the sort of initial two week using one every night, you then move on to twice a week. But some women use it three times, four times a week. You know, you can titrate it to your symptoms because it's such a low dose and it's not absorbed. There is another type of um, pessary called Invagis, which is a low-dose uh, estrogen. So it's it's estriol, which is a different type of estrogen, and it's much lower potency. So again, if you're feeling anxious, if you think you don't need much, if your symptoms are quite mild, perhaps try Invagis in the first instance. But you know, as I said, even Vagifen, Vagirax, very low-dose, very safe. Uh, there are also creams and gels. That the, the sort of downside of creams and gels is that they can be a little bit messy, um, and not everybody wants to use them. They come with applicators, so you can insert them inside. But the nice thing about them is you can just use them on the outside if you want to, because uh, you know the symptoms may be internal or external. Uh, some women use a bit of both, so they might use a Vagifem pessary for the inside, and then a bit of cream such as Ovestin or Blissel for the outside. Um, and then I'm using uh, a lot at the moment of the E-string, which is a ring. It's a sort of flexible silicone-based ring that's got estrogen in it. You pinch it to make a figure eight, and then you just insert it into the vagina. The nice thing is that it stays there for three months, so you can forget about it. Um, wow. And it's amazing. You, you can keep it in while you're having sex. So uh, you, you won't notice it. Your husband won't feel it. Um, if you prefer, if it freaks you out, then take it out, pop it back in afterwards. That's absolutely fine. But you literally just put it in and forget about it. It's slightly higher dose. Uh, than Vagifem. So it's um, a Vagifem pessary is 10 micrograms, whereas the E-string release is about 7.5 micrograms daily, I think it is. It's equivalent to about five Vagifem pessaries. So there's not much in it. And again, it's equivalent to maybe two or three oral tablets over a course of a year versus Vagifem, which is equivalent to about one. So it's slightly higher dose, but still really low dose and it's vaginal, so it doesn't get absorbed. 
it seems a bit of a faff <laughs> when I hear you speak about the pessaries and the creams and, and all of this and a few times a week, it seems a bit of a faff. Is this a maintenance that we do and then we treat these symptoms and then we're done a few months later, you can stop all of your treatments or do you feel women have to be on them for a much longer period of time or for life? How does it work? So usually these symptoms are progressive and, you know, if you stop using the treatments, your symptoms will come back. Um, I guess the only exception would be occasionally women who are actively receiving uh, treatment for their breast cancer still might find that when they stop their treatment that their symptoms get better. They may or may not go on to get them in the future, but they might find that they don't, there's a you know, period or they might not need them again. But generally speaking, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing uh, regimen. And things will change and things will evolve as you get older, um, et cetera. But it's, 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 if that, you know, these symptoms are easy to treat and it depends on the severity of your symptoms. You know, if it's, they're only mild, then it probably doesn't matter if you forget one here and there and you just use it a bit sporadically. Um, but, you know, if you've got moderate to severe symptoms, you're going to remember to use it. You're not going to forget because it's affecting the quality of your life. Yeah. So it's kind of like you need to have a plan in your head, right? You need to think, are my symptoms severe enough? Do I want them treated? I will go and see my GP. They might speak to my breast scanners or my uh, oncology team, maybe not. And then you need to come up with a plan and you need to be consistent. And, and that's sort of the way to think about it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a shame because because there is a lot of misinformation and confusion and fear. And, um, you know, even if you decide that this is right for you and you go and see your GP, I have lots of patients, I hear lots uh, of times, you know, women who've gone to see their GP. In fact, a friend of mine recently who was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer just um, tried to get some Vagifem from her GP and was told no. So as with everything, you know, menopause, breast cancer, HRT, etc., you do have to advocate for yourself. And if the first person we speak to says no, unfortunately, you need to go and find someone else. The over-the-counter um, estrogen pessaries Gina is now available. It's not uh, given. Pharmacists won't give it to you if you've got a history of breast cancer or other endometrial uh, you know, gynecological cancer. So uh, you do have to have it on prescription if you've got a history of breast cancer. A lady says, I use estriol cream twice weekly and yes, vaginal moisturizer every night. Both things have been a game changer for me. I had um, hormone positive breast cancer last year. My first oncologist refused the um, cream. So I asked another who prescribed it. I could not have carried on without some improvement. And there certainly has been. And I think that comment really sums up the experience of so many uh, survivors, like different medical opinions, heart, but this woman advocated for herself and she really feels she couldn't have carried on. And that's a strong statement, isn't it? These are... Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That There was a study published literally in the last couple of months that showed um, a big study that showed, it was, it was an American study and a, a large insurance claims analysis. And it showed that women um, who used vaginal estrogen, there was no increased risk of getting breast cancer. And women who'd had breast cancer, there was no increased risk of breast cancer recurrence. So, you know, we really do have, we don't have a good randomized controlled trial, but we do have lots of data now that we can use. Um, and, you know, you can only go with what you know and things may change in the future. And of course we need more data, but, you know, based on what we know, the, the evidence is overwhelmingly suggests that it is safe and very effective. And it might be a bit of trial and error. This other lady says, I use Vagivan before bed and with testosterone gel, both make a huge difference. Also for my libido. I was on two times Vagivan a week, but still had loads of bladder urgency and discomfort. I asked my doctor if I could go to three times a week and that has helped. 
Yeah, exactly. It's going from 20 micrograms to 30 micrograms. It's a teeny tiny dose. It's one tablet per per year. That's what you're taking and it doesn't get absorbed. And and that lady's made a really interesting point because she's talking about testosterone. And what I haven't said yes. um, is that <laughs> there's also um, a, it's not testosterone, it's uh DHEA, which I think stands for dehydroepiandrosteinidione. Don't quote me on that. Uh, DHEA or plasterone, um, and that is similar. It's uh, DHEA is a precursor, so generally speaking, it will get metabolized to both testosterone and estrogen. Because remember, testosterone is a precursor for estrogen. So um, it's an alternative pessary. It's a daily pessary, so it's a bit more faff than the other. But I think generally speaking, probably this is anecdotal rather than anything else, um, it can be quite a useful option in women who are using vaginal estrogen and still have symptoms. If you try them on DHEA or combination, and you know, um, then often that can alleviate the symptoms. And it's a really nice option in women who are using aromatase inhibitors uh, because it, it's not... The, the aromatase inhibitor prevents the conversion of the vaginal testosterone to the vaginal estrogen so again you know if you're worried about estrogen if you you know if you're really anxious about it have the DHEA you're not going to get any estrogen anyway you won't absorb the testosterone either because it's vaginal but it will be enough probably to treat those symptoms and it can be a really useful option the vaginal testosterone is this something that most GPs do you think in the country in the UK are familiar with would it's not something I hear a lot even on the podcast no, no, I, I don't think a lot of GPs probably don't know about it, actually. Um, you know, menopause specialists are very familiar with it. We don't tend to use it much generally because, you know, vaginal estrogen does such a great job um, and it's a bit more faff. Like I said, you have to uh, insert one every night, whereas Vagifem is usually just two or three times a week. But it's a really nice backup option. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's very safe. Um, so... If your GP, put it this way, if your GP uses the argument that you can't have Vagifem because, um, you know, you've had an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, it might be a way of getting some vaginal hormones that you're both happy with. Because if you say to your GP, well, how about DHEA, you know, Interosa or Prasterone, you know, I'm on an aromatase inhibitor, so it's not going to increase my vaginal estrogen anyway. It, it may save you from having a battle to get some vaginal hormones and it might work, you know, you might not need some Vagifem as well if you're using Interosa. Yeah, I love that idea because it is all about collaborating yes. with your medical team, isn't it? It's picking up information out there on social media or a podcast or from friends or people in a Facebook community like ours, for example, and then figuring out what is right for you and how can you bring your whole healthcare team on board. This last comment from a lady uh, really sums it up again. I use Vagifem every other day or Vestin three times a week on my vulva and I wash uh, with an emollient wash. This makes a huge difference, she's saying. If I don't do all of these measures, my bladder feels really irritated. Initially, my breast surgeon said that I couldn't use any vaginal estrogen at all, but luckily I have an excellent GP who disagreed and my life has changed so much. And so that's lovely to hear. But again, it's a patient who's really advocated for herself, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and whilst we're talking about testosterone, uh, and I know you've done a podcast recently with Rebecca Glazer, so we don't need to go into it in depth, but you know, uh, systemic testosterone is also quite a nice option. So testosterone uh, in this country, we, in the NHS, we can use Testogel. It comes with a gel um, and it's, so this is testosterone replacement, but we also have testosterone receptors in our you know, brains, hearts, bones, vagina, vulva, etc. Um, and and again, if you're on an aromatase inhibitor, you don't need to worry about it being converted to estrogen because the aromatase inhibitor will prevent that. Um, and there's some data that you know we know that testosterone alone can treat many menopausal symptoms. There's some limited data that it can you know save in breast cancer survivors. Why wouldn't it? It can also treat uh, symptoms of breast cancer survivors. And again, the data we have about testosterone and breast cancer risk, it seems to be very 
safe. We need more data, but it's overwhelmingly positive. So that, that's mm. another option. If you're, you know, if you're suffering from genital urinary symptoms, but you also have, you know, brain fog, cognitive mood, sleep, energy, low energy, um, uh, you know, muscle weakness. If you've got joint aches and pains, then actually, you know, think about having some systemic testosterone as well, because it would treat all the symptoms, not just your vaginal symptoms. I think there will be so many people listening to our conversation thinking, oh, I've got so many things to explore. I hope <laughs> you've had pen and paper out and that you feel much clearer about your options. Thank you for that amazing conversation, Sarah, today. Um, I hope you come onto the podcast in a few weeks or in a few months and we can discuss more things uh, really helpful for our community. Thank you for taking the time. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, I hope this episode has been helpful for you and I'm not sure how you're feeling now, but my brain is a bit frazzled. I'm going to put my walking shoes on and I'm going to change my top and I'm going to go out there for one of my walks. I am training for our menopause and cancer first fundraising walking challenge. And so I've set myself a big goal. I want to walk the distance of a marathon in December and I know I need to train for it. And I am so excited that so many of you have already decided to join us to walk through the seasons with us together. Come rain, come shine, we're going to go out there. Our new Facebook group is already attracting some lovely newcomers. We have the lovely Gemma in the Facebook group who's going to give us tips and advice. And we've got a whole grouping system for you where you can meet others depending on where you live. So per county, you can meet others and you can chat to them and maybe go for training walks together, maybe walk your hike together. Most importantly is we're going to get you to set your challenge yourself so you can set yourself up for success and I'm going to put the challenge details in the bottom of um, the show notes to the podcast as well. So for now I'm going to get out there it's a sunny day where I am in Surrey today and I'm really hoping that all of you are well. <music>